Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Art of War. War. Alright, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Sam. And I'm Clay. And this is the Art of War. And today we're going to be talking about the last battle of the Ottoman-Hungarian War. Yep. Well, it's, you know, the last significant battle. There's a lot of stuff True. that happens after it, but this is what most historians regard as the end. Yeah. And one of the most important battles in the entire history of Eastern Europe. Yeah. The Battle of Mohatch. Mohatch. So I guess, well, like we always do, we got to, you know, reset up the context and, and the situation, go back and to the previous podcast and kind of go over where where the world is at you know right now this time period mohatch right right so we talked about king vladislav ii and how he was ruling at the time in hungary and how he was not a very good king and he got rid of the black army and a lot of the the standing judicial system and basically gave a lot of power back to the nobility when we covered in um, the doza rebellion and so Hungary is pretty split at this point socially, and they actually have a pretty large debt. So even though they cut taxes so much after they got rid of the Black Army, they still don't have any money. And yeah. so King Vladislav dies in fifteen sixteen, leaving a huge debt for Hungary. Yeah, and he his, one of his his attempts at trying to you know restabilize the finances of Hungary was he was you know. He was selling off the lands and the territories of Hungary to these magnates, to these nobles, and trying to, you know, pocket some of the money for himself as well as help out the nation. But that doesn't work at all. It's it's very problematic because it just gives more power to the magnates who are only there for themselves. They don't really care about the benefit mm -hmm. of Hungary. And yeah, he, you know, like we said in the previous podcast, Clay brought it up. He he his legacy was he was the king, the all right king, they called him, because anytime they would present any policy to magnates that is if they they brought him any policy any legislation he would just immediately sign it right away he put it into action you know so he was the all right king because he was so agreeable to them so he doesn't have a very good legacy at his death and he's he kind of created uh, you know a really really bad riff in between the nobility and, and the peasantry class and the once extremely powerful kind of barricade to the you know the east Hungary has now kind of fallen into disarray and is extremely weak in comparison to, you know, when uh, his predecessors led. Yeah, like King Matthias. Um, mm -hmm. That was probably, you know, when Hungary was at its strongest. And so it's it's a lot different now. Uh, but anyway, so Vladislav II dies in 1516. And the heir, his heir is Louis II. And he is, you know, already, Vladislav took a lot of, uh, steps early on to make sure that his son became the king he actually crowned him while he was still alive so it was pretty much a done deal that Louis II was going to be king and so at the time he's the age of 10 when he's when he takes power so he's very young and before another Vladislav baby. yeah another baby king and before Vladislav II died he named Tamash Bokosh who was the bishop that was trying to lead the crusade that caused the Doza rebellion um, they were apparently were pretty good friends, Vladislav and Bakosh, and so he names Bakosh as kind of one of the custodians of the young king. Yeah, and 
there's also something interesting that I was just going to throw in here that it makes the situation of Hungary even worse for poor little Louis, uh, Louis when he takes power is that not only is this this huge rift between the, you know, poverty, you know, the poor and the, and the extremely wealthy, the peasantry class and the nobles, there's also this spreading of the Protestant religion throughout all of Europe and it's reached Hungary. And now there's also a, you know, religious political rifts growing between the noble class as well, because Hungary was an extremely Catholic country prior to this. They were very loyal to the, you know, to the Vatican and mm-hmm. that's the, the Crusades were, you know, they were the outlet for the Crusades. And now this Protestant religion is kind of take, getting a foothold in there. And so the populace is even more, you know, at arms with each other and they're now facing, you know, a new leader, you know, and that's, that's much, much too young to rule. And as we see, you know, they've got some conflict in their future. Right. Yeah. So, and you would think that, you know, he'd have a group of people that are trying to educate him to be a good king, but it doesn't seem like that's the case. Uh, and what I've read, Thomas Bakosh kind of abused his power and gained a bunch of money because of his position as like the king's custodian. Uh, and he dies a, a millionaire basically at the time. So Louis II is left out to dry a lot of times, but he is adopted right by charles v oh really i didn't actually read that he gets adopted by charles v the holy roman empire guy yeah he gets adopted by charles v who is the holy roman empire at the time or holy roman emperor at the time but charles v dies pretty shortly after that Mm -hmm. yeah and i guess let's let's go to the ottoman side of this now because this is kind of you know it's kind of similar in what happens there with uh sultan salim who was the one that was originally who the crusade was going against he was in control of the ottoman empire prior to the 1500s and in the 1500s and he passes away in 1520 mm-hmm. and his son uh suleiman i he takes over he takes the throne and he's a lot older than louis you know or louis he's 26 at the time but you get to see like there's these two new leaders that are going to come and rival each other in battle later on i just think that's kind of kind of interesting they're both both new kings yep but a distinct difference is louis ii is taking control of a very broken yeah. hungary when suleiman when he takes control his father salim the grim or resolute had actually you know waged a ton of campaigns and the ottoman empire had grown by more than 70 percent under his rule so when suleiman takes power he has a giant emperor empire that's super successful and it's really like marks the golden age for the ottoman empire when he takes over so pretty two different um scenarios that both of these leaders are facing yeah and i mean you know the ottoman empire has also quelled a bunch of the the wars on on multiple fronts they only have two central places they really are in contention for or could potentially pose an, an issue for the ottoman empire which is to the south with roads and and the grecian areas and then uh to the the west with the hungarian empire whilst hungary is kind of like they're stuck in the middle you know they're they're in the middle of the ottoman empire or they're surrounded on on majority of their their eastern side with the ottoman empire so yeah they it's it's not as as beneficial as a situation for lewis as it is for solomon right and possibly a good alliance for lewis at the time is that he's actually married to Mary of Habsburg and so that's you you kind of imagine that he would have the support of the Habsburg monarchy 
And I was reading about the Habsburg monarchy, kind of crazy. It's just like this dynasty of this royal family that ruled almost the majority of Western Europe. The Holy Roman Empire was always led by Habsburg, and Austria and Bohemia were all under Habsburg power. So it's kind of crazy how powerful this one family was. Yeah, and also, like you were saying, that you think that they would have support from them since he was married into the family. But at the time, while, you know, he Lewis is taking power and, and Solomon is trying to expand, uh, the Holy, Holy Roman Empire is at a war with France over the Italian territories, you know, and they're, they're in, like, pretty vicious conflict. So they're focusing all of their resources, their, their troops, and their armies on fighting it, it, over Italy in, in the Western Europe. Mm-hmm. But it, nonetheless... When Solomon hears of the marriage of a Habsburg to Louis II, he starts to fear the combined power that Hungary might amass. And so Solomon actually sends kind of like a delegation or an ambassador to maintain the peace with Hungary. But it's also important to note that the peace at this time with the Ottoman Empire was more of just not an open invasion a lot of yeah. the there's still so many ottoman raiding parties that were just wreaking havoc on the border of transylvania and hungary so it wasn't you know like total peace there's still like a lot of stuff going on with cities getting raided and stuff like that yeah very similar to the you know what happened at the battle of Breadfield. they weren't in a state of war at that time but the raiding parties grew so large that the ottomans saw as an opportunity you know, they rallied troops together to actually engage in battle. But at the time, they weren't expecting really any any conflict, any like large scale military conflict. But yeah, so, you know, Suleiman, he's he's a pretty impressive leader. He's he does a lot in his, his small tenure, like from the period of him taking over to this battle that we're going to be talking about. He does a lot in, in that period of time. And also, I guess this is important too to bring up because it plays it plays a large role is that back to the the Italian wars between France and the Holy Roman Empire is that Francis I, who was the leader of France at the time, he is very, very driven to take Italy, and the Holy Roman Empire is very driven to defend it, but the Holy Roman Empire controls a huge swath of territory. They have a lot more military alliances with European countries, and France is kind of like the, you know, the, the odd duck out. They don't really have much support. So while this these, these conflicts is going on, uh, France is looking for an ally, and they mm-hmm. can't really find anyone. And eventually, they he Fra- Francis ends up losing the battle, or the the war against the Holy Roman Empire at the Battle of Pavia, mm-hmm. and he gets captured by uh, Charles V. He gets taken prisoner, forced to sign a treaty that basically gives half of the French territories and wealth to the Holy Roman Empire, and he's released and. But he wants his territories back. He wants to reclaim what was taken from him. So he contacts the Ottomans. The only people that is really in contention or, or in conflict with the Holy Roman Empire that isn't an ally. And the Ottomans agree. They're like, yeah, this sounds like a good idea. Because Solomon, just like all of his predecessors as an Ottoman an Ottoman sultan, he wants to take Europe. He wants Europe to be yes. his. He wants to control Rome. He wants to control the entirety of that, that province. So he sees France as, okay, if I'm able to take Hungary, if I get support from France in, you know, the East and the West, I might, you know, have someone that when I actually get into mainland Europe will assist me. So, you know, that's just kind of important because, you know, the the French are in open support of this invasion of, of Europe. Mm-hmm. And it gives 
um, Suleiman more of a reason to march through Hungary because he has to, to get to the Holy Roman Empire. He's got to go through Hungary. Mm-hmm. And he's pretty much laid the groundwork for that because, you know, he does realize that Hungary is very weak at this point. Um, so he actually launches another siege on Belgrade in 1521. And so this is, as we coupled, uh, recovered this a couple episodes past, but the Siege of Belgrade was a major victory for the Hungarians over the Ottomans with um, Hunyadi, John Hunyadi, leading it. This time, though, uh, what are the defenses of Belgrade looking like? They're, they're pretty pathetic. And it's, you know, it's, it's funny because when I was researching this, you have two instances of the Siege of Belgrade that there's a huge amount of information on, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the previous two times that they tried taking the fortification. But this time, in, in 1521, there's so little resistance that there's not much information on it. They just kind of ride up in there, and they take it. And it's, it's you know, they lose some troops. It, it causes some issues for them. But it's like, in comparison to the previous instances, it's just, it's a, it's a cakewalk. Right. there's not much to it yeah i think i read that belgrade only had a like a battalion of 700 defenders and that was it and they received no other support from hungary or any of the barons so it was really unfortunate because this was the fortress in the south of hungary so when belgrade falls southern hungary is pretty much defenseless and there's almost no defenses between belgrade and the capital of buda pretty much yeah. And it's also important to note that there's not really any significant military leader in Hungary, right? Because at this point in time, a lot of the nobles and the barons aren't really fighting anything because it's all border skirmishes. So the only really name that comes up that's having success with battles against the Ottomans is this this man, this priest, Paul Tamori. So I think we should introduce him real quick. Yeah, so he's just like... Uh, in previous instances, he, there's there's a concept uh, that existed in the medieval times where bishops or religious figures that were either given resources, funding by the Vatican or some other Christian institution would come and be able to rally an army or be able to lead a force against you know a potentially dangerous anti-Christian army, right? So he he's one such thing. He's a, a militant priest, and he is able to. Well, he gets appointed, uh, I, I don't know if it, it occurs before or after the Siege of Belgrade. I think it, it occurs after the Siege of Belgrade, but he gets appointed as the southern defender of Hungary because of his success with defending, you know, against these raiding parties and these small detachments of, mm-hmm. of Turks that were, you know, harassing villages and cities in southern Hungary. Right. Yeah, he. I'm pretty sure it happens after the Siege of Belgrade. Uh, but yeah, he's named as the military leader of the Great Plains, which when Sam mentioned this, I think last episode or something, it was the Great Plains is just a very open, wide, like miles and miles of just empty space in Hungary. Mm-hmm. And so he has controlled this and it's pretty much the border um, with the Ottoman Empire. So he's got to, you know, try to defend this whole border area. And he does a very good job of it, actually. That's pretty much... You know, the only significant victories that Hungary has during these times is led by Paul Tamori. And at one point in 1525, he's almost secured the southern border pretty, pretty well. But um, he keeps on asking for more money from the Hungarian nobles to continue his efforts and maybe push into the Ottoman Empire to, you know, 
just get them out completely and he receives no support so it's um he, he gets pretty aggravated with that and he even even threatens to resign many times and you know before this even there was like almost kind of a push to take Belgrade back um, Louis II had formed an army and with the, the help of, you know, he was going to have the support of Paul Tamori when he got to Belgrade. But um, uh, like when I was reading about it, apparently they didn't bring enough food. So the <laughs> army disbanded before they even got to Belgrade. So, Yeah, it was, and it was a large army too, because, you know, Belgrade is such an important part of Hungary's defenses that it was a really, really scary idea that the Ottomans now had no real, like, contest in transylvania and romania because there was no launching point for hungary they had to now do exactly what the hungarians did they had to go retake belgrade because it's in the center this you know it's it's a it's a gateway into romania and transylvania so to lose that they've now base basically ensured that there's no way to really force the ottomans back to constantinople so they have to do something quick and lewis is able to rally sixty thousand plus troops which that's a huge amount yeah. when you look at the previous battles that they engaged the Ottomans in. They never had that large of a number. So at first it looks really good. But the reason the number was so large was that there was really no logistics that had been thought of. They just got a huge standing army and thought, all right, let's go take it. They didn't realize that they couldn't field that army. They didn't have the, the you know, the finances or the resources to feed them and keep them maintained that's why it was such a large army and then you know within the first few days of the march towards belgrade they run out of supplies and it just disbands completely and they've now given up for several years the the hope of taking back belgrade mm -hmm. yeah it really goes back to just the um an experience of the leaders of hungary right now mm -hmm. so in 1526 is where we are now and Hungary, you know, has word that Solomon the Magnificent is coming with a large Ottoman army, Ottoman army from Constantinople and, you know, he's going to invade Hungary. So they, they know this is going to happen and um, how do they prepare for this? Well, first of all, I just want to say this because I found this really interesting whenever I was reading about it. Uh, prior in about 1522, right after they take Belgrade, you know, it was it, their intent was to to capture the the choke point, and their intent was to invade uh, Hungary. But they still had an issue because they couldn't secure the forces in Hungary from the Mediterranean because they still were at war with Rhodes, which is to the south of them, right? Mm -hmm. And Solomon he sees them as a pretty big threat, and he launches a a siege of the actual. The island and takes it in in 1522 but the thing that i wanted to bring up that i thought was pretty cool because you see this later on with this battle too is that solomon's a very a very generous and and kind person if you look at like in terms of of a, you know a military leader you can't be very kind but but after he takes Rhodes, he gives every single person in Rhodes the ability to leave take all of their wealth every single item they possibly would want and just depart uncontested unmolested right and then he also allows all of the the population that chooses to stay there to uh, avoid taxes from the ottomans they don't have to they don't have to pay taxes for about five years and none of their their religious institutions get converted to to islam they get to keep their christian 
the Christian values and their practices. So he's, you know, he, he's a young leader. He's not really had much military conflict, but one of the first actual instances of him actually engaging in, conf in, in conflicts, he is very kind and like, you know, he's, he's generous with what he's doing and, and his, his offers of, of terms of surrender to the, to the people of Rhodes. Hmm. That's interesting then, because then maybe there's more to the peace offering he offered Louis II. They don't really say any details about it, about it except that Louis uh, rejected the offer completely, yeah. which um, you know some historians don't understand why in a way, but maybe his only option was an open battle with the Ottoman Empire, but he knew that he didn't have the capabilities or maybe he was banking on the fact that the whole Holy Roman empire would support him and the Habsburgs yeah. would support him. But um, yeah, that might be, I think that probably played a pretty huge role in it. Cause you know, they, they had just taken almost all of Europe in, in the battle against France. So you'd think that they would get some support, but yeah, but it doesn't look like anything like that's happening. And the Hungarian war council, at this time when the Ottomans are advancing on Hungary in 1526 are very divided with the noble leaders in Hungary. So there's not really much cohesion on what to do. Um, they try to, you know, raise troops and they main, they get three main armies. One is the Transylvanian army that's led by John Zapola, who mercilessly crushed the rebels in the Doza rebellion. So he has an army of about eight to 13,000 Transylvanian men. And then you have the main Hungarian army, which was led by King Louis II himself. That's about, you know, maybe 20 to 30,000 troops from what I read. And it's mainly comprised of, you know, a lot of mercenaries and other troops from different countries they were able to recruit. And then you have one last small army that's led by a Croatian count called Christoph Frinkopan. And he has about 5,000 men. Yeah, and the the core you know playmakers of the Hungarian army is once again their heavy cavalry. You know, basically what the Black Army was, and what you see with the Doja Rebellion and Breadfield is heavy cavalry. You know, very armored horses as well as soldiers on back. That's their their main fighting force. What will you know decide the battle for them? Mm -hmm. And so, how does the what does the War Council decide how they want to handle the Ottoman threat? Well, they, they see that they have to move on, you know, like move on the Ottomans because they can't let them move into Hungary and contest it. And they're planning on moving to Buda as soon as they can once the, the troops from Constantinople arrives at Belgrade. But like Clay said, there's not really a lot of uh, cohesion between the differing views of what should be done. And they choose to meet them they they choose to meet them at the Drava River because the Drava River River is the second biggest choke point. There was Belgrade and now the Drava River. It's it's you know it's I think it's about uh, three fifths of the way towards Belgrade from Buda, right? Mm -hmm. And it's if they take that river, then they just will be uncontested all the way to Buda, and they don't you know they don't want their capital being the. <laughs> The, the place of the battle because right. if they lose then this the city's gone so they want to meet them at that river whenever they're making the crossing or potentially whenever they've crossed now they've got their back to the river so that's what their plan is is to to encamp and and fight them whenever they're 
you know, they're, they've they've been marching or they've just crossed a river and are tired from the, the extent of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the Drava River is in more of southern Hungary, and it kind of goes uh, almost like up northwest cutting through it. And so this is, you know, a pretty good choke point because it's a river. And the original idea, I think, that the Battle Council had was to prevent the Ottomans ever crossing the river because, you know, that's one of the best things you can do is stop an army from crossing your river or catching, like, right after they cross. But, uh, yeah, so that doesn't happen. <laughs> They're not able to, to gain enough support and get the army prepared in time to actually stop the Ottomans from crossing the Drava River. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and they do, you know, fortunately, they do make it, um, they make it to somewhere near where their original plan was, and they're able to encamp, but they don't really plan out the location of the battle well because I guess we should include this because we haven't really included this in uh, the preparations of the the armies, but they field about eighty five cannons. The the Hungarians do, uh, but the Ottomans, who are pretty well known for their artillery usage, one of the first countries to really employ it in large scale military conflicts, they have three hundred cannons, right? So they have much more artillery. Also, the Janissaries they have uh, the equivalent of a musket that can be fired, you know, at, at oncoming troops. So they're they're pretty pretty focused on artillery, and the Hungarians choose a giant open field. And they pick a, a portion of the field that's it's beneficial for them. It's a little bit well guarded. It's got areas where they can sit at a higher advantage point uh, or advantage point from the the Ottomans. But the Ottomans also get a really advantageous position where they have uh, not a lot of room around them. There's tree lines and hilly areas, so there's not really flanking potential, right? And the Hungarian forces are comprised of mostly heavy cavalry that are trying to, you know, defeat the Ottomans. And now they've kind of made it so they can't flank these Ottomans, right? Mm -hmm. So they didn't really think about how how they're going to meet them on the field. So they get the advantage of, of being able to camp and be rested, but it, the, the battlefield isn't isn't in a good spot for them right yeah so the hungarian army the only advantage they have really is that they're well rested while the ottomans have been marching for days and days so they're a lot more tired and so they choose this this battleground it's the it's a field outside of uh oh what's the name again mohatch mohatch yeah a field outside of mohatch it has the danube river on one side and then it's kind of like a swampy marsh area over by the river and so we'll get into the, I guess, the, the setup of the armies then. So the Hungarian army, they set up in just basically two main lines. So they have the front line, which in the center is the mercenary infantry. And then on the right and left flank are the majority of the heavy cavalry. And then you have the second line, which is just more infantry and a little bit more cavalry. And the first line also has all the artillery, so the, the 85 cannons. Yeah, and, and this is also interesting to note because uh, in previous battles, in most medieval battles that don't employ artillery, it's it's one large line. They'll have some reserves mm -hmm. that you know f file in if a, if a hold forms or if there's a flanking maneuver. But in, for the most part, they don't hold multiple lines of troops because there's no reason to, mm -hmm. right? You, want, you don't want to shorten or, or make like a column of your troops because then it allows the flanking to happen even easier. You can be enwrapped much easily much easier 
but because they have these this artillery, these 85 cannons, they have to protect the cannons. So they have to have troops in the back and in the front so that the cannons can't be overwhelmed because cannons, you know, the, other than the wagons like we we saw in, in Varna, uh, there's not really much defense to them, right? Mm-hmm. Those, those troops firing the cannons aren't capable of, of fending off cavalry. And the same thing we see with the Ottomans. They have three lines of troops. They have the artillery towards the back with two lines in front of them and the same the same logic is being employed of defending their cannons because that's their their main devastating force right yeah and so the the only one of the only good things that happens for the hungarians during this battle is that the ottoman army does not arrive all at once because they have just passed the river and so you have this um you have this rumelian army which is kind of like the, the Balkan area that the Ottoman controls. So this army is the army that gets there first. Yeah. And they're, they're like Clay said, they're not very well rested, but Suleiman's aware that there could be a potential attack at any point. So he has them set up in formation when they get there in the, the three tiered formation, he's got the artillery ready to fire, but the, the rest of the army's lagging behind, which to the Hungarians, the accounts state that they, you know, they're not, they weren't aware of this initially. They believe that was the whole army because the Ottomans had such a large uh, army that even half of it arriving first, they thought that was the main army. Yep. Yep. So I guess we can get into the battle now. One more important note that's actually pretty vital is that the Hungarian army, when they light up for this battle, they do not have the reinforcements from John Sapola of Transylvania or from. Christoph Frankopan of Croatia. So they don't have those two armies reinforcing them at all. It's just the Hungarian army at this point. Yeah. Yeah, and it's only 25. There's multiple accounts, of course, all like always, 25 to 40,000. But, oh, hilariously, this is funny. This is our first instance of this. The the Ottoman troops, according to Hungarian sources, were about 50,000 to 60,000 strong. But uh, current, uh, you know, contemporary uh, anthropologists state that the army was probably more likely to be a hundred thousand to a hundred and ten thousand. So it's our first time where the old sources were probably giving a smaller estimate yeah. than what actually it was. So I just thought that was funny. So it's about the Ottomans probably had in the full force, not initially whenever they arrive on the field, but in full force they were about a hundred thousand to a hundred ten thousand. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get into it. Yeah. So, so the Hungarians they. They know that this is, you know, this is a very, very important battle. This will decide the future of Hungary. So they lead the charge. They they attack with the right flank straight into the Ottomans. And mm-hmm. the right flank was, like, both flanks were comprised of heavy cavalry. And the left flank of the Ottomans, they were, they were you know, sappy. They were a mixture of light cavalry and, and light infantry. So they quickly start fracturing, right? They're they're not in any way able to contest the, this heavy cavalry, and they start moving backwards and backwards and backwards, and while the right flank in the center of the Ottomans, they're not really engaged in much in much fighting. So this is that's what's happening on the left flank. But what's what occurs? What occurs, Clay? Well, yeah. So it's the Hungarians have a bit of success here in the beginning. They're actually. Um, pretty much routing the Rumelian army on that flank and they kind of send them into retreat but as they're pursuing them the Janissary force is there with the whole heavy artillery and 
the outdated heavy cavalry at this point in time is not a match for these elite Janissary riflemen that can just release a volley and volley of bullets into the Hungarian army. And so it's pretty much almost a wash at this point when the main Ottoman artillery force gets there and they just kind of mow down the Hungarian heavy cavalry. Yeah, and when whenever Hungary sees, Louis sees that the right flank is winning at first, he sends the center after the Ottoman center. And this was a huge blunder, like an incredibly bad blunder, because the Ottoman center isn't just, you know, soldiers. It's not the the elite guard, the elite combat guard. It's the artillery. It's the cannons, right? And it is also a contingent of Janissaries that are wielding guns. So while they're crossing this large open field, like we we, we talked about, they're being just pelted with cannon fire and and uh, bullets so they just become complete cannon fodder and th- when they actually make contact they've lost almost half of the the center and that's just you know that's not going to fly when they're going against janissaries who are also you know they're not only good at firing artillery they're good at hand-to-hand combat so the center is also in a terrible situation and their left flank uh, engages with the ottomans right flank and for a while it goes about as well as as the previous flanking attack where the heavy cavalry is kind of overpowering them mm-hmm. but the center collapses so quickly that they get enwrapped and then in the back like clay was saying the arriving troops are able to just disperse the the heavy cavalry and destroy them and the battles just it's it's over from there they now have such extremely uh disparaging numbers there's very little losses on the Ottoman side compared to the Hungar- Hungarians. They're in disarray, and they just get encircled and massacred. Yeah, it is a pretty pretty bloody battle. The The um, Ottoman cavalry kind of encircles the Hungarians and pushes them towards the swamps of the Danube River so they don't have much of a escape from behind them. Um, and it is, yeah, I think estimated... 10,000 Hungarians died. Uh, Paul Tamori, who we were talking about, the warrior priest, was leading, I think he was leading the left flank with mm-hmm. his army, and so he perishes in this battle, as well as John Sepola's younger brother, Georgi Sepola, also perishes in this battle, along with many, many, many nobles, Hungarian nobles. A lot of them die. And then King Louis II flees the battle instead of being killed by the ottoman but what happens to him he's he's crossing a a small like stream river creek and he gets knocked off his horse in the chaos of the fleeing routing troops and because he's you know he's following in line with the hungarian tradition of being heavy cavalry he's in his night garb and when he falls into the water there's not much hope for him he can't you can't swim with a hundred pounds of armor on you so he drowns. That's that's really unfortunate. He doesn't, you know, that's his first military engagement, and he he drowns yeah. after routing. Well, you know, at least he had the um, the courage to be on the battlefield. I guess that's true. That's true. But yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, the the from the sources I was reading is they they uh, Hungarian artillery really played no role. They it caused some kind of issue for the the ottomans but overall they didn't really do much with them which is sad because at this time most european countries didn't even 
ploy cannons mm-hmm. and Hungarians had, you know, enough knowledge to know that they needed to use them, but they didn't really use them effectively. I guess that's kind of the overarching statement of this whole whole battle is that the Hungarians they didn't really execute their strategies very well at all. Right. And their strategies were archaic and a little outdated, mm-hmm. relying on yeah. heavy cavalry against an army that has very heavy artillery and riflemen just is not going to work at this point. This is kind of an interesting shift in the way battles are fought, fought, right? Because we've been talking about the cavalry so, so important. But now it's, you know, the dawn of a new age with, with gunpowder and rifles and heavy cavalry is not working as much. I mean, if it is, you know, a very good leader that, that has, like, good tactics, we, we've seen it, you know, in the past work better. Yeah, with John Hunati, they actually, the Ottomans kind of execute a similar strategy that Hunati always liked to execute, where you, you kind of lure the troops away from the main army and then use the the cavalry to encircle the rest of the army. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what they do, but the Hungarians don't do it. <laughs> poor, poor guys. Yeah, you know, I honestly feel pretty bad for King Louis II because, you know, he's very young and he really wasn't given much help and early on in his kingship he was uh you know he even says that he grew up in poverty even though he was the king because the nobles just had all the wealth for themselves and you know he has to make these really important decisions but he doesn't have too much experience and you know from what i read he didn't want to fight this battle uh, mm-hmm. he wanted to use like a retreat tactic and fight the ottomans more you know pretty much at the capital of buddha um, but then he had a bunch of pressure from the nobles and the military council to do something. So he's really caught between a rock and a hard place having to to decide to go lead the troops in this battle. And it clearly doesn't work out well for him. Yeah, and he, he was, you know, who knows? He could have been a very capable leader because he seems at the beginning of, of this, you know, potential invasion of the, the Ottomans, he seems to understand what's going to transpire because after Rhodes is taken, he starts calling for support from uh, the nobles to garner a huge army, a huge a huge military strength to, to resist the Ottomans because he sees that Belgrade's been taken, Rhodes has been taken, they're going to invade next, right? But, yeah. you know, he was 16 when that transpired and he dies when he's 20. So it's kind of, yeah, it's very unfortunate. He doesn't, he doesn't really get as as much as he should have been given especially with him marrying into the holy roman empire and they've not really in much conflict they should have definitely assisted him right so yeah well let's cover that in a little bit of the aftermath so the shield of christianity which is hungary has pretty much fallen and now it's the, the interesting thing is the ottomans after winning this battle they go up they sack the whole capital of buddha and then they just leave hungary altogether so they don't really have the resources to you know conquer all these lands so they just leave altogether. so then hungary pretty much gets divided up with archduke ferdinand of the habsburg empire who gets the the support of the high nobles and the magnates is pretty much controlling the entire northern part of hungary but then john zapola of the transylvanian bavoid or governor gets the support of the lesser nobles and controls the capital of buddha and then some of the southern territories, so it's Hungary's pretty much split. Yeah, and Ferdinand's the brother of Charles V, uh, who had passed recently, uh, and he's also trying to consume 
uh, the majority of Hungary and make it part of the Holy Roman Empire or part of his own Holy Roman Empire territory. And John John uh, Zapoya he sees that he doesn't have the support of the people that he needs, right? Mm-hmm. And he's not able to really contest the the splitting of Hungary, and he ends up eventually signing a treaty or agreement with the Ottoman Empire, and he becomes essentially a vassal to the Ottoman Empire. Right. And so the Ottoman Empire gets the Eastern Hungary, and then the Holy Ro- Roman Empire consumes the the west the west and northern part of Hungary. Yeah, and so that Hungary's it's kind of gone. It's yeah, this a lot of powerful nation. Yep, a lot of historians mark this as pretty much the end of Hungary in this era, in this era, and the end of Hungary's, you know, very powerful role as a very strong Christian nation, and it gets really torn apart in the ensuing years as the the Hab- Habsburg Empire wages war with the Ottoman Empire, and Hungary is a major battleground for that war. Yeah, Hungary basically becomes the Transylvania Romania of the Ottoman Hungarian Wars. They they're the the territories that aren't really in anyone's control, just the conflict territories. And it's sad cuz yeah, they were you go back to when we were talking about the Black Army, they were the one of the most formidable fighting forces in the world and the rest of Europe really viewed them as their saviors and their potential uh, you know, reentry into eastern, you know, uh, Middle East and to take Constantinople and, and re reglorify the Holy Roman Empire, but they kind of they kind of just they don't really lend them much support and they kind of give up on them and then there they go they're gone Hungary's just collapsed. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a sad ending for Hungary. Um, you know, good for the Ottomans. This is their golden age, so they mm-hmm. go on to do a lot of great things after this for themselves. Yeah, and oh, oh and, you know, I wanted to bring this up too is that. Even though Buddha was sacked, it was actually a uh, a intent of Solomon to leave all of the territories in Hungary un, un uh, you know molested. He wanted Buddha to be taken, but not any of the civilian population or any of the the architecture destroyed. Mm-hmm. He wanted them to just be under the control of the Ottoman Empire. But as he left, some of the troops that remained raided it and burnt it down anyway but he his intent was to do the same thing in Rhodes, where it was a very peaceful transition he wanted them to all be able to maintain their religious practices and and be you know ottoman citizens but not be you know lose their culture but that's not what really happens at all yeah well okay i guess to end it off we'll do our 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 flaming pig rating of the day yes i think we do cold extreme like in the fridge but it's been in the fridge for so long that it's got a bunch of mold on it and it smells like a dirty sock well it's like like a piece of ham just stuck back in your fridge yeah 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 Yeah, like it's got it's got like frost burn on it but it's also moldy for uh for lewis the second sending the troops up the middle yes yeah yes just i mean the whole overall thing like yeah i mean can't can't blame it all on lewis that's but true like just hungry in general just makes a huge lapse in judgment in so ma- in so many instances that it's yep that it can't get it can't get good bacon didn't have to end this way didn't but it really did it did <laughs> it did that is history all right well i think that's all then yeah i think we covered pretty much all of it that's that's the end of the Ottoman Hungarian wars. Yeah. This, this campaign we've been talking about, it's, yep. it's over. Bit a bit of a meaty end here, a bit of a longer episode, but it's cool. There's a lot to cover, and True. yeah. So we'll return next week 
we haven't decided yet what we're what we're gonna be doing, but we'll uh, figure it out. Yes. So we'll catch us then. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hi, listeners. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, make sure to follow us on all of our social medias. You can find our social medias in the description on our Spotify page. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to check out our sister podcast, Gray Skies. Each week, the host Eliza talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history. And hopefully we're going to be able to collaborate with her. Yeah, so look forward to that. 